People who believe aging brings wisdom live longer. This is a quote from today's guest in his most recent book, The Expectation Effect. And I've got to say, for our listeners who have listened to the podcast for quite some time, you know I read a lot. And this book shot very quickly into my top 10 and is probably making it into my top five all time. I absolutely love this book, and I am more than excited to introduce our guest to you today. We're going to talk about this concept of the expectation effect, how your brain is a prediction machine, and what that means to you and your overall growth, evolution, and progression in life. That's today on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. Welcome to the Evolve Podcast. Evolve your body. Evolve your mind, evolve your soul, and evolve your tribe. And now, it's time to disrupt. Welcome back to the Evolve Podcast, where evolved men and women come to disrupt, connect, and get inspired. Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor, Med One Capital, for sponsoring the Evolve Podcast. We appreciate the support. The Med One Group exists for the sole purpose of making medical equipment available to the healthcare industry. You can find out more at medonegroup.com. As always, joining me from the Mind Palace in Oberlin, Ohio, and we were a little sketchy on whether or not you were going to be joining us today, Miles. The most interesting man that I know is W. Miles Riley. Welcome. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we had one hell of a night last night. Quite the storm, knocking out yeah. trees, power lines, and yet here you are. I have never seen anything that like that. The 65 years on the planet, I have never seen lightning like that. <laughs> I have never wow. seen torrential rain like that. Um, the power went out, and it was absolutely stunning. I'm glad nobody was hurt, but it was stunning to look at. I just stood at my window, just watching the the, the earth light up. Beautiful. That's a, it, it's amazing what nature can do. It's gorgeous and terrifying all at the same time. And you with your new bionic hip, I'm sure you went out there and picked up some trees and just threw them around, right? Threw them around just like that. Clear the path for some people. <laughs> I love it. And somewhere in the mountains of Utah, I am Steve Cutler. Today's guest is David Robson. David Robson is an award-winning science writer specializing in the extremes of the human brain, body, and behavior. After graduating with a degree in mathematics from Cambridge University, he worked as a feature editor in New Scientist for five years before moving to BBC Future, where he was a senior journalist for five years. His writing has also appeared in The Guardian, The Atlantic, Aon, Men's Health, and many more outlets. In 2021, David received awards from the Association of British Science Writers and the UK Medical Journalists Association for his writing on misinformation and the risk of communication during the COVID pandemic. In 2022, he won a Mental Health Story of the Year at the MJA Annual Awards, and was a finalist for the Best British Science Journalist of the Year Award from ABSW. David's first book, The Intelligence Trap, was published in 2019 and received worldwide media attention. His second book, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life, was published in the UK on the 6th of January in 2022 and in the USA and Canada on the 15th of February in 2022. It is a journey through the cutting-edge science of how, the mind, uh, how mindset shapes every facet of our lives, revealing how your brain holds the key to unlocking a better you. 
The Expectation Effect was a BBC Radio 4 book of the week and won a British psycholog excuse me, I am messing this one up, David. I apologize. Psychological Society Book Award. <laughs> that's a that's a mouthful in the popular science category. You can find the book on Amazon, or if you're like me, you can buy the book and concurrently listen to it on Audible because you love it so much and you want to get so much out of it. David Robson, thank you so much to, for joining us today. It's completely my pleasure. We are grateful to have you, and you are coming to us from London today. Is that right? I am, yeah. So and we it, hope you meet our expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not even sure what your expectation of us is. I hope it's well, and I hope we meet those expectations. But I'm confident that our listeners, regardless of what their expectations are, their expectations will be met or exceeded. Um, Miles mentioned his weather there, and I know before we started the recording, you said that uh, the weather hasn't been kind to you in London this uh, this summertime. No, it's quite grim. It's very cloudy even now. We, it kind of it felt like we went from spring to autumn without having much summer. To be honest, <laughs> isn't that disappointing? Is. We. We had in Utah, we had the longest winter that I've ever experienced. And by the time summertime came, it, we we jumped from winter right into summer. We went from the crazy, crazy, ridiculous cold into the crazy, ridiculous heat. And uh, now I think we're getting a little bit of uh, fall. So nice to see those things change. But, you know, expectation really uh, sets us up for either happiness or sadness. But first of all, uh, I want to, uh, for our listeners who have not read the book or don't know about it, can you explain what is the expectation effect? Yeah, so my definition of the expectation effect is, is this phen uh, phenomenon where our beliefs can create self-fulfilling prophecies, and that can happen through uh, free interconnected mechanisms, which can be changes to your behavior, changes to your perception, or changes to your physiology. And I say that are interconnected because often a change to your physiology will then change your behavior, a change to your perception might change your behavior too. Um, the most uh, common and famous example of this is the placebo effect in medicine, which I guess we might talk about later. But, um, but actually what is new and exciting about all of this cutting edge scientific research is that we found that you have a very similar phenomena, um, things that are, you know, kind of akin to the placebo effect in all other areas of life. So that can affect your fitness, how you respond to a new diet, how you respond to sleep loss, um, your productivity at work, even how you age. So it's very widespread. It really is just part and parcel of the way humans operate. And so it really isn't just that if I believe something that I am going to will that thing towards me, right? And one of the things I love about your book is that it is so different in the sense that it's based in science. It is backed by research. This isn't a, if I sit and meditate, I'm just going to bring millions of dollars into my lap immediately type of book. And so the changes, whether it's in the physiology, the changes to the behavior, these are the things that start to create the life that we are wanting. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how some of these shifts create the, the life that we're looking for? Yeah, I mean, I guess like the real kind of basis of this whole idea is that the brain is working as this prediction machine. Um, and what we mean by that, and it's very fashionable theory now in neuroscience, um, what we mean by that is that it's constantly building simulations of 
the world around it based on its past experiences, its context, your culture. Most simulations, first of all, they're shaping your sensory perception. So we know that the data hitting your eyes or your ears or you know your taste buds is often imperfect, it's ambiguous. And what these simulations are doing is tidying up that messy data and making sense of it, filling in the blind spots, um, sometimes discounting extraneous data that would be um, irrelevant to, to your goals. And so that is then shaping your perception. Um, but simultaneously, the brain is also then using these simulations to guide your physiology, is preparing the body for the challenges that it believes you're going to face in the near future and in the distant future. Um, and that in turn is also going to shape your behavior, you know, whether you um, go into the fight or flight response, whether you're primed more for creativity and problem solving, um, all of these things can be influenced by those simulations. There's so much power to that, especially when we talk about the physiology of it. I remember when I was uh, young and running track, I had the same physiological response before every meet, and especially before the gun would go off. And I remember as a 100-meter uh, uh, runner, I would get into the blocks, I would feel my stomach I feel like it was just going to drop out from underneath me. I would feel the rush of adrenaline coming to me when the uh, the person holding the gun yelled set and everybody's hips went up in the air. The anxiety could not have been more palpable. In fact, I can almost taste it in the back of my mouth right now what it felt like. And it was a pure physiological response. Now, as soon as the gun went off, all of that went away and my focus became narrow and I just ran. Preparation for activity is something that the brain does when it expects certain activities. You referenced this before, that it our physiology preps us, this fight or flight response. How does this insight help people to question their current beliefs? Well, so I think like anxiety is a great example of the expectation effect. Um, and essentially, you know, like you said, your brain is already preparing your body for action when right. we're getting anxious. That's what's happening. So that, in a sense, is kind of one broad expectation effect. But then what the research shows us is that actually our ex expectations of the ways that anxiety is going to influence our performance is also very important. And so you know, it could be that you were kind of getting kind of prepared for that race. And you read that anxiety, not as something that was going to enhance your performance, but you saw that it is something that was kind of debilitating, it was almost a sign of your impending failure. And I think that's much more common, maybe not in sports, but definitely in something like public speaking, or when you're facing an exam, you start to have the same fluttering feelings in your stomach, your heart's racing, your palms are sweaty, and you believe that because you're feeling so nervous, that that's going to lead you to perform worse, that you can't focus, that you can't um, come up with those solutions that you need to. Um, now, that is one expectation. Another equally reasonable expectation would be much more similar to your expectations on the racetrack where you see that the anxiety is actually going to fuel your performance. Right. That can be equally true in the exam hall because, you know, your heart is pumping all of this oxygenated blood to your brain that's going to fuel your thinking. 
And that kind of charged feeling in your muscles comes from cortisol, which is also making sure that you're kind of alert, like there's no good going into the exam hall or onto a stage feeling kind of drowsy and sleepy, like you're going to perform a lot worse that way. So we can see stress, the same physiological responses to stress, broadly the same. We can see them as either debilitating or energizing and enhancing. And what the research shows is that it's those expectations that then become the self-fulfilling prophecy. So people who see their stress as being more enhancing and energizing, they actually do perform better in all of these different tasks. They're using their stress to their advantage. Yeah, it really is about the perspective. I love how you, you right. talked about that, and I love how you referenced that in the book. Uh, years ago, so we have three kids, and years ago, um, somebody gave me a GoPro camera, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. They, they had just come on the market, and I thought, oh, this is great. And then I realized, well, I'm just not that type of guy that films himself when he's out. Like I am just, I've never been wired that way. But then as I'm going through the package and I notice that there's this little thing that you can put on the head and you can carry it around and you can video yourself while you're doing it. I said, I don't, it wouldn't be interesting for me to video myself or what I'm doing, but I would love to see what, what life is like through my kid's perspective. And so my wife and I took the three kids out and uh, we went on a hike and I had it on my oldest, my second, and then my youngest. And going back and watching their perspectives from that hike was fascinating to me. We all did the same hike. We went up the same mountain. We saw, and I say saw in air quotes because we didn't see the same things, but we all saw the same things. We experienced the same environment. And yet watching my son and his interaction and the way that he would run around and pick up a rock and throw it versus the way that my oldest would just very calmly walk and pause and observe, such as her personality, really opened me up to that people can be in the same space. They could be experiencing, even as you said, the same physiological response, but their perception of it is completely different. How can people harness the power of the expectation effect and guide the physiology in the direction that, that they uh, that achieves their goal or that helps them move towards a, a more positive outcome? I mean, when I started writing the book, that was really like the million dollar question was, could we change our mindsets? Mm -hmm. um, and the research really shows quite strongly that you can. And it's not something that you just kind of flick a switch and then your mindset is changed forever. Like it does need perseverance, like you would expect for any kind of any, you know, skill that you're learning. But the fact is, we can change it. And, you know, what the research found was that actually just learning about the science of the expectation effect is often enough to get that process started. So with these students who go into that exam expecting that their, you know, anxiety is going to be um, this kind of depleting, diminishing force that's going to damage uh, the results, you know, they actually just included in like the mock exam booklet um, a short passage of text that explained that stress is adaptive and that it's we evolved it to enhance our performance and to, to actually reappraise those symptoms as something that, you know, was like a tool that they could use. And what they found was that that alone was enough to change their performance in that exam. They did perform remarkably better. And wow. crucially, it then changed some of the parameters of their physiological response. So even though they were experiencing 
the stress response. It seemed to be a less extreme, kind of more moderate, healthier stress response. So in addition to kind of the fluctuations in cortisol, they also saw the release of anabolic um, hormones, you know, like testosterone that can actually help to kind of protect the body during this kind of, during a physical challenge. And afterwards, they saw that um, their, their kind of cardiovascular response kind of relaxed a lot more quickly, which is really important for your long-term health if each time you face a new stress you can recover very quickly afterwards it stops you accumulating the damage that might come from being repeatedly stressed when you you find recovery very difficult um so yeah learning about reframing their emotions was enough to bring about that immediate improvement and then i think what you know what the research shows us is that actually we just have to remember to keep on doing this so to actually build on that so the next time you enter a similarly stressful situation to kind of try to remember how you'd reframed it in the past and the success you'd experienced that time to kind of really go on that trajectory you know i did this with my own public speaking um i used to hate public speaking like most people um but when i was promoting the expectation effect like I really tried to practice what I preach so I would do that reframing every time I went on stage and you know it didn't perform miracles immediately but it did turn my stress over you know, the year and a half that I've been promoting the book it turned my stress and my kind of fear of public speaking um completely around so that now I really love promoting my book and I love the conversations that I have and it lets me appreciate that and and it's just allowed me to grow so much by just changing the way I appraise the stress response. It's amazing. I, you know, I've, I've been in the health and fitness field for almost 25 years. And one of the things that I've learned in working with top athletes, professional athletes, Olympic athletes, uh, people who've, you know, performed and, and won at a very high, high degree, uh, the response that they have from a physiological standpoint might be very similar to, in fact, I, I used to work, um, with the group that would do testing on some of the top Olympic athletes. And while the responses were very, very similar from a blood work, from a hormonal profile, the nuances in response were fascinating. The top athletes, as you referenced before, tended to have more of the hormonal response like testosterone, uh, cortisol levels were more manageable. And it was almost like they had learned how through setting better expectations and understanding through their methodology, through their system, that whatever was happening physiologically, it was setting them up for performance. It was getting them into a state where they could perform better. So it takes time. As you said, it's not something that, that happens over time because I love how you talk about in the book that the body or the brain is a prediction machine. Machines don't just change with time. They change with tweaking and, and nuancing. Um, can you explain to our readers what you mean when you say that the brain is a prediction machine? Yeah, so it really is this idea that it's building these detailed simulations of the world around it. And so that could include, you know, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what's going on in your your own body, because, you know, we talk of five senses, but actually we have many more senses you know we have sensors within the gut um mm -hmm. that help us to work out you know how much food we've consumed what nutrients are there whether we need to um look for uh more food in the future based on what we've just eaten and you know all of this is being influenced and interpreted by the brain working as this prediction machine it's using its simulations to kind of hone that data to interpret that data and to then 
guide your physiology and your perception and your behavior and so that's really the idea there's you know there's this idea in neuroscience that actually the formation of these predictions those simulations that's actually also fundamental to the conscious experience so mm. it's really you know almost what we're perceiving is that simulation rather than directly experiencing the world around us so people often talk about um consciousness as this kind of controlled hallucination um i love that theory but i think in uh, for the purposes of the expectation effect we don't really have to think so much about consciousness per se but we are thinking about what these simulations are how they're shaping those three main factors behavior perception and physiology and how our own thinking processes are feeding into those simulations because unlike other animals who also work through this prediction machine we have culture we have language we have symbols all of these things can shape the simulations that we're building David, I, fascinating point. Um, Charlie Munger, who's the uh, co-chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, has said that it, it, he believes in becoming a polymath in life and, and learning many things about many different areas and becoming an expert in as many things as you can. And one of the reasons why he poses this as an important concept is that the more you learn about the world, the better frame of reference you have for all things. Uh, in fact, Warren Buffett, his uh, partner in crime at Berkshire, has said that Charlie makes amazing decisions, partially because of how much he knows and how much he reads. How is educating ourselves and gathering more information about the world influencing our overall expectations? Yeah, I mean, it is influencing them enormously. Um, so, you know, a baby, one of the reasons that babies you know, like they're so helpless is because they haven't built enough experiences to really guide the prediction machine. So maybe they are experiencing the world in its kind of raw form a little bit more <laughs> than great, an adult. Great description, would be. I love that. Right. Raw form. And, yeah. you know, I think like when you see a baby that's in distress and it doesn't know why it's in distress because it can't interpret, you know, the feelings inside its body when it's getting hungry or when it needs the toilet or when it's, you know, gut is aching a little bit, it has no way of interpreting them. Whereas as we get older, we're much uh, more capable of kind of appraising the, the sensations we're feeling. Um, now, one of the, you know, things that we can do even as adults is to educate ourselves about the many different emotions that we can experience. Um, you know, I think like um, we've been brought up to look at our emotions in quite a crude way, maybe. You know, you have the basic emotions, as Darwin would call them, as, you know, anger, sadness, um, happiness, you know, all of these uh, kind of, I would say they're like the primary colours of our emotions, but actually there are many Great different shades and you can learn to name those shades, you know, things like schadenfreude, which we didn't have in the English language until quite recently, or becoming hangry, when mm. your anger is caused by a kind of physiological deficit of food and energy, rather than, say, because someone has actually offended you. Now, work by Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's also been a key proponent of this um, prediction machine theory of the brain, you know, her research has shown that when we really learn to to chart those graduations of emotions um that can 
be enormously, enormously helpful in guiding our behavior and in helping us to cope with stresses. Um, I actually think, you know, even the, uh, just the different stress appraisals in some way is a form of this um, emotion differentiation, as she calls it, but there are many other ways we can do that. Beautiful way to put it. I mean, we've talked about that quite a bit on the podcast, that a, a very nuanced approach to understanding your emotion is a critical piece to becoming a more evolved man or a more evolved woman. The more nuance you can learn about yourself and the more you can develop a vocabulary and a lexicon that matches with what those emotions are, you are able to express yourself in so many different ways. I love, I'm, I'm David, I'm stealing this from you right now. I'm just telling you, I love how you talk about the painting in the primary colors. And then there are so many more emotions, so much more depth. I, I'm going to steal that, uh, uh, that concept. I'm curious, as a writer who discusses science and the practical application of science uh, and the research into our lives, do you ever feel any internal pressure to apply what you learn? I do, but I mean, I wouldn't call it a pressure exactly. Um, it's a privilege. Um, you know, I, great I expectation, like, great framing. <laughs> right. I, I felt like writing the expectation effect was kind of giving myself therapy, um, to be honest. Um, so I do write in the book a little bit about how I'd suffered from depression in the past. And, you know, I went through the usual channels of like, um, you know, I'd been on a course of antidepressants, I'd um, taken some uh, lessons in cognitive behavioral therapy, and that all helped. But I think, you know, what has really helped prevent then kind of a relapse has been uh, researching and writing the expectation effect. Um, and I'd say, you know, I consciously don't really write about things I haven't tried myself, because it's one thing for a scientific, a scientific principle to have been shown in the laboratory, but I really want to check that it works for me, that it's practical to employ and, you know, for me to have that experience of, you know, what are the difficulties when, you know, when it doesn't go right. Um, so that's why actually everything I've written about in the expectation effect I've tried for myself. I love that. And that's one of the things that resonated with me about the book. There was, um, I, I remember when I first read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's first book, he presented things in a very observational way, but then there was a tinge of, okay, here's what I've experienced. And then you get into somebody like Tim Ferriss, who is all about just let's test stuff and then tell you what I did. Um, yours, your book has this fascinating balance and it, I don't quite understand how you did it, but you present the facts, you call things out for what they are. And then you also just beautifully weave in this. Oh, and by the way, I tried this and oh, by the way, here's my experience there. And so it doesn't read as just straight science book. It doesn't read as a straight experiment or experiential book. It's the perfect balance of it for me. So, I mean, amazing job with how you wrote that. I that escapes me how someone can write as well as what you did, weaving all of those pieces together. Uh, I could certainly resonate with a lot of that. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely my goal. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing with writing The Expectation Effect was actually it just flowed very easily for me. Um, I guess I've been thinking about these topics for a few years before I even wrote my proposal for the book. And then it just... You know, it was a lovely feeling of kind of crystallization where it all fell into place as soon as I started writing. Yeah, it's beautiful. It really comes. How do you well. present this to? How do you present this? Say you're in a you're a teacher, 
and you're in a room full of high schoolers or right. people who are not even familiar with the how the mind works and how all this stuff works, how would you present this information to them? Mm, yeah, I mean, that is, you know, high schoolers are going to be a tough audience. <laughs> yeah. That's why I asked. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got but, two I mean, kids in high school. Miles has one, I have one. I, so Right. But, you know, I think high schoolers, you know, really do want to understand themselves like anyone does. Um, and it's a great stage, actually, of life to learn about these things. Like, I wish I'd been able to read The Expectation Effect when I was that age. Um, I mean, I think, like, First of all, I would start by pointing out, you know, expectation effects that everyone experiences and is familiar. So when you think about your favorite food and your stomach starts rumbling and your mouth starts watering, that is an expectation effect. That's actually your body preparing the digestive enzymes for you to uh, make the most of that food that you're thinking about. So, you know, the expectation effect might sound like something like manifesting that's, you know, um, maybe a bit woo-woo to some people, but actually is immediately based in kind of our physiology stuff that we're already aware of. So I would definitely do that. Um, and then I think, you know, some of this science is actually quite um, like basic to understand. And I think like if you explain it in the right way, I think high schoolers can easily understand something like the stress response, the hormonal changes that we're talking about. Um but yeah, getting them, kind of presenting that evidence, I think, without oversimplifying it, without making too grand claims. Like most people, I think, really respond well to that. And they can often, you know, if you ask them, like, can you think of a time in your life when you felt that your anxiety was actually, or your stress was enhancing your performance? Can you think of a time when it was debilitating? Most people can actually draw up those experiences. So it could be someone who, you know, felt like really charged on the sports field but then really debilitated when they were entering the exam hall and then you just tell them well like if you just try to bring a little bit of that energy that you had on the sports field into the exam hall that mm. will help improve your performance I think that feels very intuitive to people and they can understand it much better that way when they look back at their own personal experiences so it's, it's almost as if you're getting them to understand their own expectations or the feelings that they've had of expecting. So yeah. to give them something to grasp, and then they can, what I would say, cross-pollinate it with other ideas and things like that. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think you can understand the science, and you know that is important, I think, for you to have kind of confidence in that the expectation effect does work. But then I think like what really helps to cement that in people's minds is actually then drawing on their personal experiences too. And, you know, just trying it out and seeing what happens. Um, maybe in a low risk environment, you can still try to apply some of these techniques like reframing. And once you've kind of seen some success, it becomes easier to apply it in lots of different situations. I love the compare and contrast method that you're talking about, because everybody has experienced something where something like anxiety has helped them to focus and perform better. Whereas there are other times where that same feeling of anxiety or anxiousness has brought them down. David, you just referenced something that um, I, I want to get more of your take on. Uh, over the past several years, there's been many, many books written about attracting things to us or manifesting. Mm -hmm. As you said, I yeah. love the whole woo-woo concept. Um, it, to me, they've always come across as woo-woo, uh, almost like quackery or modern-day modern alchemy. 
How can our listeners understand the power of the prediction machine without delving into false hope? Mm, yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, if people feel that manifesting has helped their life in some way, I don't necessarily, you know, like I don't want to question their experience of that because actually I think like what these books are tapping into is that we do have this intuitive understanding that our expectations are shaping our reality. And, you know, they're, certainly is something to be said for kind of changing your mindset so that you are on the lookout for new opportunities that you might not have noticed before you'd read that kind of book. Um, but yeah, I do think like sometimes with the positive thinking literature in general and the idea of the law of attraction, it's unrealistic. It's putting people under this kind of pressure to always remain kind of relentlessly positive because you're meant to be putting this good energy out there to you know get back what you're kind right, of sowing right um like the expectation effect isn't i don't think it, it's in the same category because often i'm not asking us to i'm certainly not asking us to kind of set unrealistic goals i'm ask, more often asking people to reframe the situation and to look for the nuances in the situation so with this stress example which we've spoken about I'm not telling people like you've got to go into that exam and you're going to love every minute of it because actually feeling that feeling under pressure is not pleasant. It's discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just asking people to sit with the discomfort and to realize that even though they may not like the feeling that it can also serve a purpose. And we can see that in all different kinds of areas and actually all different kinds of emotions. You know, you can um, learn to view uh, a disappointment, you know, it's horrible to feel disappointment and frustration, but you can also recognize that it's conveying an important message to you without just denying that the emotion exists, but you can accept that it's actually teaching you a lesson. You can ask yourself what that lesson is, how, you know, how it's telling you to maybe change course or how it's reaffirming that your goal was important. I think a lot of the times when we feel disappointment it's really telling us that actually this is something we still want to pursue we just have to take a different course of action and the research shows that when you reappraise your feelings in that way you're not um you know you're not denying them you're not trying to fight the feelings you're sitting with the feelings you're reinterpreting them that actually just leads to much better um outcomes mentally and physically than if you try to be kind of always positive and just try to uh, suppress those negative feelings so I think that's one important difference I then just think you know with all other kind of areas it's like rather than kind of setting our expectations too high um, we can just try to kind of look a little bit outside of our comfort zone so if you're going to the gym like I talk in the book about how our appraisals of our own physical fitness can actually shape our performance and again this is linked to our physiology things like gas exchange within the lungs mm -hmm. you know the runner's high the release of endorphins all of those can be influenced by expectation effects but I'm not saying like go to the gym and like visualize yourself as like um you know Usain Bolt and then you're going to get on the treadmill and you're going to run 100 meters in like 10 seconds like right that is only going to result in disappointment. Um, it's going to be demotivating. But if you can just question some of the kind of baseline assumptions you have about your fitness, like if you've been a bit of a couch potato and you've just assumed you don't have the genes for fitness at all, like you just tell yourself you're always going to find exercise hard, um, question that assumption. Like that's probably not, doesn't have a good 
factual basis and the, the kind of scientific truth is that for almost everyone who tries to perform exercise if they you know increase their exercise incrementally they're going to see incremental improvements in their performance too in their fitness and that they build strength over time um that to me seems like a much more sensible approach to this um to just avoid that catastrophizing thinking where you're telling yourself you're terrible you're a failure you're never going to succeed that is the first step and it's often enough to see some important improvements and David, I think that's one of the things that really resonated with me is uh, throughout your book was there's there's a grounding of reality here. Um, I, you're very kind to, um, you know, the way you talk about uh, right now, the idea of manifesting and that, you know, we, we won't argue with those things. I, I will say, I love the fact that what you're presenting in the book is very factually sound. And it's actually something that I found over the years. I used to sit back and see people who would say, I'm manifesting this into my life. And it just, it led to delusional thinking. It led to a, 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 a discordance with what their emotion was. I love how you talk about that. Don't push those negative emotions away. The negative emotions, the uncomfortable the things that don't feel good, that's, that needs to be there because that's part of our growth process. Um, you know, the, what was it? I think Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he was talking about the the pump in the muscle and the burn in the muscle and, and what it takes, he says, the difference between a champion and someone who isn't a champion is a champion will look at the burn that's happening in the muscle and the pump in the muscle as a very good thing. And he said, I would always work out and I would have a smile on my face because every repetition, every bit of that muscle burn was something that pushed me closer to what my ultimate goal was. And so he embraced the pain. He embraced the challenge as something that would help him to get to that next level. You reference this quite a bit in your book of, of this idea of reframing or restructuring and that how powerful that is in creating this idea of, of setting up better expectations for ourselves. How can a person take something like a negative uh, emotion, a negative physiological response or a negative experience, and then reframe it towards a better future? Yeah. I mean, that's, um, you know, I love the um, Schwarzenegger example um, because actually there has been research showing that when you teach people to, reframe the aches in their muscles as they're working mm -hmm. out um that actually does make it more likely that you're going to release those endogenous opioids um mm -hmm. kind of brain zone in a pharmacy um to give you that kind of buzz after you've um performed your workout so you know right. it's really powerful to be able to turn something that seems like um discomfort but to see the benefit in that and is used for growth and we've seen that in um, trials of medical treatments. So kids who are taking, um, who are undergoing this kind of exposure therapy for peanut allergy, um, where they just slowly increase from tiny, tiny doses of the um, peanut protein, you know, day by day until eventually after six months, they can eat a whole uh, peanut without having an allergic reaction. And now that is often very uncomfortable as the kids are going through this process you know because it's activating the immune system and that can lead to symptoms you know like hives itchiness in the mouth um mm. you know it can make you feel like you're about to go through the whole allergic reaction a full-blown allergic reaction that could be quite scary and the researchers just told them that 
just see the the beginnings of these sensations see them as being like that burn in your muscles when you're exercising or you know the kind of soreness in your fingers when you're playing guitar or the ache in your toes when you're performing ballet see it as a chance for you to build the resilience of the immune system and what they found was that with those kids just changing their appraisal of the discomfort in that way um it kind of reduced their fears it meant fewer people dropped out but it also mm -hmm. changed the physiological reaction to the treatment itself so those kids were far more likely to experience the um to by the end they were far more likely to produce the positive antibodies that were kind of protective that prevent the full-blown allergic reaction so it can be very powerful this even in that you know very specific medical context um but i think you know we can have experience of this you know in everyday life um we've spoken about exercise but i think you know with work if you're facing frustration like sometimes i face writer's block and mm. i could have seen the frustration as as being this kind of sign that i wasn't good enough that i'm not cut out to be a writer um you know even if I don't decide to like you know throw my laptop out of the window and give up um it makes the whole process you know really unpleasant if you're interpreting the setback in that way but actually just like the kind of aches in um Arnie's muscles you know mm. frustration is something that we have to go through in a creative process like it wouldn't be you know we wouldn't be being creative if like it just came instantly to us without any kinds of difficulties in processing the information and coming up with the uh best solution um and the research shows that if you reframe your frustration in this way you see it as the kind of engine of growth um that people feel a bit better but more importantly than they actually their cognitive performance improves as well because they're again they're channeling that frustration into something positive rather than allowing it to dominate their feeling and drag them down yeah it becomes part of the process and i i, I think that right. the the peanut thing was fascinating to me the research that you, that you put out there and i want to come to the placebo and nocebo effect in just a second but um Stephen Pressfield in one of his books uh, talked about he he made a comment saying uh, that inspiration struck him on a regular basis, uh, it, whether it was 20 to 30 minutes into his writing every day or 60 minutes. But he says, I don't write because I'm inspired. I, ins I, I write to become inspired and that, uh, you know, the channeling that muse happens after the frustration. And so this concept of saying, OK, there's frustration along the path that that is a good sign. That's a marker along the path. There's challenge, there's the muscle burn, there's the anxious feeling before a presentation at work, but that's all part of the path. But that is not a sign that we should turn back. It just is a mile marker to keep us going forward. Can you yeah. tell our listeners a little bit about this placebo or nocebo effect as you referenced in the book? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the placebo effect, I think we're kind of... Um familiar with um mm. you know it's been studied or it's been acknowledged for hundreds of years it's been studied for you know more than half a century um and it's sometimes interpreted as just like um you know the patients are being deceived and they feel better and they're probably like hypochondriacs if you respond to a placebo effect because you can't have anything wrong for you with you if like you get better with like a sugar pill or 
um, you know, a drop of like diluted sugar water. Um, but like that's not actually what the scientific research shows. It shows that actually placebos can bring about these physiological changes as well as the subjective changes. And, you know, this has been best studied in pain. Um uh, where you can see that uh, the brain is actually producing its own endogenous painkillers when you believe you're taking um, a real analgesic drug. Um, you can measure that, you know, through neuroimaging. You can give people blockers that uh, kind of prevent those endogenous painkillers from um, being able to dock to the transmitters in your brain. And what you find with those people is that they won't experience pain relief from the real drug, but also they won't even experience uh, pain relief from a placebo. Um, mm. And, you know, that wouldn't be possible if the placebo effect was purely subjective. Right. Um, now, again, like, this is not saying that, like, our expectations can perform miracles. So, you know, I really um, react very strongly to people who seem to think that, like, having the right mindset can prevent you from getting cancer or can um, shrink a tumour because there's just there's no mechanism by which that could happen like we can't right, right. our prediction machine can do lots of amazing things but it can't actually direct your immune system to attack a specific tumour in your body and mm -hmm. so that's why with the expectation effect I do try to again be realistic and say like it can actually it can do marvelous things for you, but it can't perform miracles. And that's why we have to be very specific about how we apply it and, you know, what, you know, what we hope it's going to achieve. Um, now, the nocebo effect is very much like the placebo effect, but it's just the opposite. It's the evil twin. So if you expect to become ill, often that can create symptoms of illness. And I think, again, it's a common example that we've all had. If you have been out with a friend for a meal and then they get food poisoning, you might start to feel very nauseous or you might even start vomiting. Now, that could easily be a nocebo effect because the prediction machine knows what you've eaten and knows what's happening to your friend. And it's kind of getting ready to like expel that pathogen before it can actually cause damage to you, even if there's no pathogen in your own gut. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that is one example. So and, you know, yeah, you know, um, but there's loads of other ways that the nocebo effect can work in medicine. You know, often when people have negative expectations of how they're going to um, recover from an injury like concussion, then the those expectations can actually prolong their recovery. They make the, it much harder for these people to overcome their symptoms. And again, like I'm not saying here that the it's all in people's heads with these injuries. It's not at all. But what can happen is that, you know, you're exacerbating some of the inflammation, for example, that might be leading to some of the symptoms. We know that the nocebo effect can influence things like inflammation, blood uh, pressure, all of these things that are clinically relevant. Mm. Um, and often, you know, we often think of the brain and the body being kind of separate. Um, eventually, you know, lots of illnesses and our experience of illnesses are kind of a combination of physiological factors and then kind of our mindsets as well. The two are constantly interacting. And with the placebo effect, we're experiencing the benefits of that because you're actually bringing some relief. With the nocebo, with the nocebo effect, you're experiencing the opposite. You're 
uh, beliefs are actually prolonging your pain. It is fascinating. I love how you talked about the the empathetic the empathetic effect that physicians can have on patients by just talking about how quickly they'll recover and how right. things can um, happen yeah. with them with their to aid in their recovery, as opposed to those physicians who well, I don't want to say lacked empathy, but just were clinical in the approach to their patients. Right, exactly. And yeah, so this is what I love about this research is that, you know, it shows it's not like giving the placebo pill to someone is one way of raising patients' expectations of recovery. But actually, the doctor's words themselves are biologically active through a very similar mechanism. Um, we know that if you a doctor delivers uh, morphine surreptitiously, if it's kind of fed in for a drip, that pain relief is much less effective than if the doctor is actually present, giving the injection while saying reassuring words. You know, that, yeah. that is just one example. It's about 50% of the pain relief in this study that people um, <laughs> were experiencing, like 50% of their pain relief from the morphine was actually coming from their expectations, not just from the drug itself. Um, the same with, you know, complaints like rashes or, you know, a virus, you go to the doctor, um, they can't really give you any treatment because it's going to be self-resolving. But if they reassure you when they tell you that and they kind of give you a kind of time frame and, and you know, really make sure that, you know, there's nothing to worry about, um, that interaction, that kind of warm interaction actually increases the speed with which you recover. So for people who went to the doctor with a cold, when they had this kind of warm, empathetic, positive experience they actually got better from the cold about a day earlier than the people who had a more kind of strictly clinical encounter and you know colds only last about a week so that is actually quite a big improvement and again right, this was right. traced to physiological measures like the inflammation in the nose it seemed it was actually helping the immune system to function more efficiently that's so fascinating yeah, really expansive so we can expand this to well beyond the doctor's office, especially when I hear words like, but I got a tingle when you said the doctor's words can be biologically active. And then I just started thinking, right, how right. can I become biologically active to everybody <laughs> in my life? <laughs> you know, that's a great who has said things to me that really affect my life in a negative way, in a positive way. And how do we create a society where when we understand that when I'm talking to somebody, I can make them better and I can make them worse just by body language, tone, inflection, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think we do kind of use this, you know, like when, you know, your kid falls over and you kind of, they've, you know, grazed their knee and you kind of give them a kiss on the knee, you know, that is performing the same function. And I think that really is helping their bodies to recover more quickly through this um, healing response. It's fascinating. When when I read that in the uh, in the book, I started to think back to a conversation uh, my one of my brothers and I had. He's a cardiologist and he uh, he's kind of an electrician, right? So he puts the uh, pacemakers in, and he regularly after the surgery will go in and talk to his patients post surgery. And I asked him a question one time. I said, "Well, when you go talk to somebody post surgery, they're still under." like anesthesia. I mean, do they remember anything? Oh, he says, no, no, they don't remember anything. They, they have no idea that I came in. And I asked him at the time, <laughs> well, why do you do that? What's the purpose? He goes, that's just part of our process. 
But then when I read that in the book, I thought, I wonder the power of healing that can come in to the body, even if the person is not at a certain level conscious because the they're they're awake, right? But they're still groggy from the um uh from being under. I wonder if the doctor coming in and saying, hey, the surgery went really well, everything took well, you should see recovery in this amount of time. I wonder at a very subconscious level if there's a change that's happening there to help the person to heal quicker uh post-surgery. So fascinating, fascinating research there. Um, you know, David, I've, I've got to say thank you for introducing me to the writing uh, or through your writing to, uh, I want to make sure I say his name right, Moshi Barr uh, and his work. Man, I cannot tell you the, the amount of time that I've spent diving into uh, your book and then his videos and just, you know, the research that he's done. Uh, Barr discussed a concept somewhat uh, and, and posed in an older text that I had read called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by uh, Betty Edwards. And the concept that Edwards had taught was that most people are poor practitioners of drawing for one simple reason, and that's, and really not just drawing, but any creative pursuit. And that's that they drew what they knew rather than drawing what they saw. Now, how do our assumptions about the world color our perception of it? Yeah, I mean, you know, through the prediction machine, like, our assumptions are shaping it like very profoundly. Um, so, you know, there've been like so many amazing examples in the scientific literature, um, you know, there have been experiments where people would, um, where the scientists kind of played these students, um, just pure white noise, but they told them that at intervals, they might hear Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. And then the students had to, report you know when they heard him <laughs> i literally laughed out loud when i read this in the book i've got to tell you this i i busted out laughing which is not a great thing for me because i typically read at about four in the morning when everybody else is asleep that is my time to consume and so here i am in my office laughing out loud at this point at about 4 4 30 in the morning i please continue <laughs> and i you know about 30 percent of the students were absolutely certain that they'd heard some strains of um, White Christmas underneath right. this white noise. <laughs> there was nothing <laughs> there. Um, you know, it's same so look, when people look at kind of visual noise, you know, like the kind of snowy screen on an old-fashioned, untuned TV, mm. um, you know, you tell these people, lead them to believe that faces are going to appear. Mm. And, you know, again, about 30% of the time, they would see a face when there was, you know, none should have been uh, visible. And, you know, what you can see from that when you scan these people's brains is that when they're seeing that face, you actually see the same um, brain activity that you would see if they were looking at a real face. It was activating wow. the same fusiform face area that um, is active, you know, when we're speaking. Um, and again, it's like, I think from the imaging it was almost indistinguishable the response and that's why you know that just shows us how powerfully our expectations are shaping our perception yeah i really resonated with um your reference to Sarah's painting uh a couple of years ago i saw that in person for the first time at the uh, chicago institute of art and had an amazing experience to just stand there and stare at this uh painting where literally 
blobs, dots of color are just laid down. And as you step further back, you get this beautiful painting of people in the park. And as you get closer, you see more of what's in there. One of the things that fascinated me was there was a worker in the Institute that had uh, was standing by the painting and would say, hey, come here, come a little bit closer. Let me show you some things. And she would point out these little dots and say, some people see this in the painting. And then as you step back a little bit more, I would I would see people say, oh, I see that too. And it, so when you wrote about Sarah and this concept of expectation, and we we basically are just filling in. We're not really seeing, right? We're filling in the rest of it. David, I've got to jump to this because both Miles and I love not only living a healthy lifestyle, but we adore decadent food. We are, we will send pictures to each other back and forth. Miles has is his entire Instagram is like 99% of it is food. And we will, we will call each other up sometimes on a Friday or a Saturday night. I will be on a date with my wife and I will get a phone call or I will call him just to show pictures or talk about the food that we're eating. Can you tell our listeners about the research relative to how we describe food and how that's linked to weight loss or weight management? Yeah. I mean, so I think like, um, you know, sometimes we have this kind of toxic food culture. Um, yes. Well, I feel like especially if people are trying to lose weight, um, they can start to see like the enjoyment of food as being this kind of sin. And like, mm -hmm. it becomes quite puritanical, you know, where it's like you're punishing yourself for having enjoyed food in the past if you're trying to lose weight. And so you're really looking for foods that are kind of low calorie, but you know, aren't going to give you that sense of celebration or enjoyment. Um, and the research really shows that's going to backfire quite badly with your dieting. Um, you know, we, I, I still think that like cutting calories is a very effective way of losing weight, but we, you know, we can't just lose sight of the fact that our food also has to be delicious and interesting and a celebration. And the research shows this really beautifully um, and it all comes back to, the, again, this idea that our um, prediction machine is interpreting the sensory signals we're receiving from our body. And that includes those sensors within our gut that tell us how much we've eaten. Um, now, that's, you know, quite poor, the data we're receiving from uh, those sensors, you know, that are measuring the stretch of the muscles. Um, so our memories of what we've eaten and our attitudes to that food is incredibly important. So you've got experiments where scientists were kind of giving people these bowls of soup and then surreptitiously kind of pumping more soup in from the bottom or taking more soup um, away. So you could compare people's perceptions of how much they'd eaten with the actual amount of food that they'd eaten. Um, and what they found was that the perceptions were more important for determining their hunger afterwards than the um, than the sheer quantity of food. Um, then we have experiments looking at, um, you know, food labeling and descriptors. So you had this uh, wonderful experiment from Yale University where these participants were um, called into the lab on two separate occasions. They, unbeknown to them, they drank the same milkshake on each occasion. 
It's just that the milkshake was labeled differently in each case. So even though the nutritional value should have been the same, on one, they were shown this kind of label where it was, um, the milkshake was kind of decadent and luxurious and it emphasized how much ice cream and cream had gone into <laughs> the shake. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was a real treat. Um, and they were told it had like, you know, 700 calories. Um, on the other day, they were given the same shake, but they were told it was a kind of sensible health shake. Um, there was nothing really to make it seem very appetizing. And they were told it only had a couple of hundred calories. Now, on each occasion, the researchers measured the um, body's ghrelin response. Now, ghrelin is the hunger hormone that stimulates appetite. And what normally happens when we eat a good, you know, delicious, satisfying meal is that your ghrelin might um, peak just before you've eaten because, you know, have got this amazing meal in front of you. Right. You want to eat it. It's kind of priming you to kind of um, to make the most of that opportunity. But then once you've eaten, it drops dramatically because, you know, you're satisfied. You don't need to seek food anymore. You can kind of rest and relax and not digest that food. Um, and that's exactly what happened when these people saw the decadent, luxurious labeling to their milkshake. But when they consumed the sensible health shake um, or believed they were consuming the sensible health shake, the ghrelin response just kind of stayed flat. It didn't really change much at all. So um, fascinating. Yeah. And that's, you know, a wow. real problem, I think. Like, you know, combined all of these experiments showed that our expectations and beliefs about what we're eating will shape our appetite later that day. And, you know, whether we go on to kind of to snack or whether we actually feel full and satisfied. Um, and, you know, it's a real problem if you're only cutting calories and you're not getting satisfaction from your food and you're secretly believing that you're depriving yourself, that is going to, um, that's going to backfire in the long run. That is just fascinating. The, the I, I've studied the, uh, at length for probably decades now, the idea of leptin and ghrelin and how they interact with each other. And when I read what you talked about with the labeling of the food, it blew my mind. I love decadent food. I love making decadent food. And I have challenged people for years when people say, well, you have to eat clean. You have to eat, quote, healthy. You have to, you know, all of these words to describe. I said, mm -hmm. just come, come over to my house. Let me make oh, you right. food. Let me make you food that will make you just enjoy everything. And I guarantee you're going to get lean, you will get strong, and you will love your life. You don't have to eat the garbage that you're eating. You know, don't. And so I, I read that that was pure, uh, what do they call it? Just validation of something that you already believe. Yeah. I mean, that was just one of those, those, those minds where, or those times where I thought, okay, I'm just feeding my own ego right now by reading this, <laughs> uh, patting myself on the back, or I don't know how, what you would call it, but uh, fascinating, fascinating research. Um, you discussed exercise in the book, and you discussed a principle that I think many people in my field of study uh, have known for years, and that's the fact that when we exercise, our body will find a way to use the muscles in the most efficient way. So not necessarily using all of the muscle fibers or all of the motor neurons to fire the muscles that are needed. And it will essentially regulate how much effort we're putting out there. And sometimes it will say, hey, if it's too hot, maybe you're going to overheat. And so you might pull back a little bit, right? 
uh, if your body is trying to conserve energy for later, then there might be some limiting factors that the brain is putting on this. Can you tell our listeners about how our expectations of exercise and those those limitations that our brain puts on us are affecting us? And are there some ways that we can address that? Yeah, so this is kind of, you know, something that um, I definitely applied to myself, like with all of this, but I mean, again, a bit like the public speaking, like it was really influential for me because um, I'd always been a reluctant exerciser. I mean, I had like the good intentions and I did it because I knew I had to, to remain healthy. But um, so I was quite dedicated in that sense, but I'd never really loved exercising. And I'd always had these assumptions from my childhood where I was like the youngest in my year at school and until I got to about 15 I was like one of the shortest like I always um just but I wasn't cut out for Mm. uh kind of exercise um and I carried that with me into adulthood um but the research shows that you know then those expectations are really going to shape how you perform and like you said it's it's to do with numerous factors it can be you know, how many muscle fibers your brain is willing to recruit to practice these movements. It can be to do with the efficiency of the movements. If you feel that you're stronger, maybe you're going to be moving in a way that's more efficient rather than say, um, you know, consciously trying to avoid um, injury. Um, uh, And it can change things like the gas exchange within the lungs. So how efficiently you're moving carbon dioxide out of your body and oxygen into your body. Um, Now, we know that last result from another ingenious uh, experiment from Stanford, where these researchers gave people a real genetic test, uh, but then gave them sham feedback. So some Mm. were told that they had the positive version of the CREB1 gene, which has been associated with better stamina and fitness. Mm. Um, Others were told that they had the um uh they had the kind of bad version you know which has been associated with you know a slightly lower aptitude um now what they found was that those expectations shaped the participants performance in an endurance task independently of the genes themselves and in some cases the expectations were even more important than the genes themselves. And that was true, wow. Uh, wow. particularly for this gas exchange. Um, so that's very profound to me. And it just made me think, well, actually, I really need to start reassessing these assumptions. And I think that's what is true with so many expectation effects was I've been carrying around these beliefs that were no longer valid. There was no reason why I should think I'm any worse at exercising than the average person. Um, I'm never going to be an Olympic athlete, but that doesn't mean that I can't improve, you know, day by day at the gym. And so I just started taking that attitude and I stopped comparing myself to the people around me and focused on my own trajectory. And, you know, that really did bring um, the kind of gains I wanted in my performance, but also just in my enjoyment of going to the gym. So it went like public speaking. It went from something I kind of really dreaded in my weekly routine to something like I really relished. And it's actually, you know, one of the things I most enjoy now, like it feels essential for kind of maintaining my mental health as well as my physical health. There's almost this Zen-like state, isn't there? When you get to the point where you say, okay, 
I, like you said, I'm, I'm probably not going to be an Olympic athlete. I think it would be fair to say that for somebody like me, I'm not, I will never play in the NBA. Right. I, even if I was one of the best shooters in the world, my height, so many other things would have limited me, but there's this Zen like state that you get into when you stop the comparison and you set up an expectation to say, well, my expectation does matter. My belief does matter. And if I go in without comparison to external resources, little by little, I can improve. And by little by little improving, I then get into this consistently growth mindset and this state, as DeWick talks about in her book of growth versus fixed mindset, that the research truly shows if you take on this growth mindset, you can improve almost anything in life. You may never be the best in the world at it if you don't have a certain aptitude for it, but you can become better at it. Um, you know, Miles and I joke when we talk to each other that uh, if if either one of us was like the emperor of all the world or the galaxies or whatever, we we kind of go back and forth on what are the books that we would uh, or the courses that we would require people to read. I almost feel like that expectation effect for me is now got to be a a foundational book that somebody has to read. And then immediately afterwards is James Clear's Atomic Habits, because it's the two come together to just marry this perfect Okay, let's challenge the concepts and the expectations. And here's some science and some ideas of how to do that. And then start to apply clearest concepts of start small, build from there. And it, once you've graduated from there, we'll let you uh, maybe get a driver's license or maybe we'll let you open a bank account, right? But uh, but but that needs to be the, that that's your seminal moment is once you have understood those uh, those books that you could move forward. Yeah, I love that. And um you know, I really do like strongly agree with that idea that it's like, you know, those incremental changes that you make, they add up over time. Um, right, right. And I've seen, you know, online, there's like, there's a bit of a backlash now against Carol Dweck's idea of the growth mindset. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I find it very frustrating. Um, because, you know, some of these critics are saying that it's misleading kids, because they're never gonna, if you don't have the genetic aptitude, you're never going to become you know, an Olympic athlete or, mm -hmm. you know, genius mathematician. Well, you know, there's truth in that. But I don't think Carol was ever saying everyone can become an Olympic athlete because that's no, clearly no. impossible. But the fact is, you might have someone who was a complete couch potato who, because they've developed the growth mindset, they improve their fitness dramatically and they live a longer, healthier life. Well, I think that is actually more important than someone winning a gold medal actually right. um same with like kids you know they might not all become albert einstein but i think like basic numeracy is so fundamental right. to living <laughs> a good adult exactly. life and if you're teaching people a growth mindset that allows them to actually achieve you know that level of mathematics i think that is also incredibly powerful so yeah i think you know we, we've all got different abilities and skills and I think that's accepted but also we can there's a, a value in cultivating skills even if you're not going to be world beating at those skills right right yeah and I it, it's funny you bring that up because I've read things where people are critical of it and you can tell by when people are critical just for the sake of being critical you can also tell when people are critical when they don't fully understand they've never read the book or they've never actually read the research because DeWick lays it out in the book right. and in her re, in her published research 
she shows this is what is. She doesn't say, hey, little kid who's five foot three, you will be an Olympic level high jumper someday. Right. <laughs> she she lays out in the research that it yeah. matters to get you better. In fact, um, I believe it was the movie Rudy in there where she talks about how um, you know, it's such a horrible idea to just try to go become the the you know the starting person on the uh, Notre Dame football team if that's not your aptitude for it, right? But right. you can get a little bit better. So love that. Well, the other thing is what I think what she was saying, or he was saying is effort. And once you get intimately involved with your effort, that will take you to a point where you can see if it's possible that you could do right. that. Right. Yeah. So your effort just puts you on a track. And at some point, with the right effort, you're standing at the crossroads of maybe I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Agreed. I totally, I think that's, and you know, I think I've experienced this myself. Like, to be honest, when I started like um, senior school here in the UK, so like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was 10 years old, um, I was not good at maths compared to my classmates at all. Like, mm-hmm. I was, you know, um, I would have never thought I would have studied it at university but actually I think I was lucky to have a teacher who did have the growth mindset and she explained it's not like she was saying oh you know you change your mindset and instantly you'll be good but it was just that actually everyone can like learn to apply these mathematical principles and like with that effort you're gonna get better and I did get better so you know I went from being kind of very middling to being like the best in my year at school and then to going to Cambridge and it was but if I'd had a fixed mindset, I could have just kind of given up and never pursued that. Like I could have just um, assumed I was bad at maths and actually got yeah. progressively worse rather than mm-hmm. better. One it's fascinating what it does. Effort, is it yeah. put, effort puts you intimately involved with yourself. Yeah, it throws yeah. you in the game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, I much like you, I'm not, I, I would have never considered myself uh, good at math, but one day something clicked for me when I understood that if I learned certain principles, I could understand the financials of a company better. And so I started doing uh, financial breakdowns and looking at profit and loss statements and margins. And I, all of a sudden, you know, a year, year and a half later, uh, I was in a company that was a you know multi-billion dollar company, and I was the person that was teaching all of the leaders how to break down their financial statements. Now, I remember standing in front of a group of you know two dozen people teaching them how to do this in this methodology that I had uh, come up with of how to do it faster. And I walked out of that room, and there was almost like this little kid me that was like, what did you just do? There is no right. way that we could have done this back in elementary school. We we were not good at math, remember? And yeah. and so adult me uh, just patted him on the head and said, "Hey, we got this." Uh, David, we we like to ask some of our uh, guests some some rapid fire questions about their own personal growth and evolution. So I'd love to oh. uh, ask you just a few final questions here. And the way we do our rapid fire is either one word or one sentence to answer the question. Does that sound fair? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So how, uh, what have you learned in the past three years that excites you the most? Mm, I've learned about a phenomenon called the liking gap, which is, which has inspired my next book. The liking gap. Ooh, (laughs) what a cliffhanger. Okay. We're having you back when that, when that book comes out. Uh, David, what scares you? No, he's got to talk more about that. No, this is the rapid fire. We're doing one round and we're going to leave our our listeners on a, uh, on a cliffhanger here. David, what scares you the most? 
um, spiders. <laughs> okay. Uh, my wife is right there with you. Uh, yeah. What are you most proud of? Uh, having increased my social confidence. Oh, great. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely love that. David, what do you know that you feel like maybe no one else does, but you wish they did? Mm. Uh, there's a phenomenon called the illusion of knowledge that I think is in, could improve people's decision making immensely if they knew it. Okay. All right. And is there a book they can read to learn that? Uh, yeah, maybe my first book, The Intelligence Trap. There we go. All right. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, so final question. Uh, as we evolve and as we grow, there are certain things that we no longer believe that we used to. What do you no longer believe that you used to believe? Hmm. Oh, so many possibilities. Um, I think it's that self-criticism is beneficial. So I no longer believe that. Interesting. All right. I want to dive into that one at another time. <laughs> yeah. Well, listeners, on that note, it is time to wrap up another episode of the Evolve podcast with our guest, David Robson. The book is The Expectation Effect. The next book that I'm reading is his second one, The Intelligence Trap. David, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom yeah. and your research with our listeners. What a fascinating conversation it's been. Oh, yeah, thank you. It's been a blast. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, we, we've had a great time. Uh, for our listeners, we talked about that they can pick up your books, The Expectation Effect, and they can pick up the book, The Intelligence Trap on Amazon, or if they're like me, they want to pick up the books and the Audible uh, I would highly encourage them to do that. If they want to learn more about you and what your upcoming projects are, uh, what's the best way to keep in touch with you? Um, so my website is davidrobson.me. Um, I'm on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, um, mm -hmm. D underscore A underscore Robson. I'm on Instagram, David A. Robson. Um, so on all of these platforms I kind of update with my journalism and you know with book news that kind of stuff love that and we will link everything in there in the show notes so David Robson thank you very much and uh, hey evolutionaries remember that it does take time and consistency to evolve but first you have to disrupt and now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. and evolve thank you for listening to this episode of the evolve podcast follow us on your favorite podcast app and if you haven't done so please give us a rating as an independent podcast, it really helps us get more reach. This podcast is part of our mission to help millions of people evolve into the best versions of themselves. Please check out our coaching services at evolve-cast.com or pick up some of our Evolve merch. Until next time, keep evolving.